Welcome to season three of the Change the World podcast. I'm your host, Sivya Kohn. As CEO of 14 Minds, a marketing agency that works exclusively with Jewish nonprofits, I am a firsthand witness to the incredible physical, spiritual, and emotional services these organizations provide to our community. However, I also see the many challenges they face along the way. This season, I'll be speaking to incredible nonprofit leaders who haven't let any obstacles get in the way of their mission to change the world. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am so honored and excited to be with Mrs. Bronnie Rosen, who is such an inspirational person in the nonprofit world. And I am so excited to speak to her, hear her story and share with all of you. So Mrs. Rosen, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. For those who don't know, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started. My name is Bronnie Rosen, like you said, and I, I have the choice of being the founder of a time. Now it is a worldwide organization helping couples going through a fertility. Yes, we're not for profit. It was one of the things we did at the very, very, very beginning, you know, to become, to do this totally with transparency, you know, totally with the not-for-profit status. We belong to the club. Right away, we, we opened up like that. So 30-something years ago, when I was experiencing infertility, I was completely alone. And I, I remember promising that if Hashem helps us and we have a baby, that we will share a story. Sometimes I think that I don't even need to say more. Like just the fact that when I had a son and I could have disappeared into the world, the infertile world, I chose to put my name to infertility. And I think that's probably the biggest thing we did, my husband and myself, for the stigma. Absolutely. So let's take a little bit of a setback. And obviously, whatever you feel comfortable sharing, you mentioned that when you were going through infertility, you were alone. So can you share a little bit about what your experience was like and how that led you to want to establish something that would help other people? Okay. So first, I just have to say that, you know, I brought first time I had a great experience in school, high school, geo president, beautiful wedding, all of that. Never dreamed that this would be something I would be experiencing. And then it was quite shocking when we didn't have a baby and it was a year and we had no idea who to turn to. And I remember my husband went to his class and teacher and said, where do we go from here? And he said, you know, give it a little more. And we were Baba Vachasidim. So we went to the Baba Vareba, who was very, very, he was amazing because he said to us, he said, okay, by two years... I want you to see a doctor. And we're like, who? And he said, you know what? There's someone in Babif that had a baby after like seven or eight years. And I'll get the number. I'll get their number. And I'll give you their number. And my husband, and he said, don't tell the Gaba anything. I'll do it myself. He said, another person doesn't need to know. And I remember making that call. And they were like, oh, we never went through infertility. They didn't share. So when we called the Rebbe back, the Rebbe said, and why can't they just give you the number? And we finally, we made that appointment. We waited four months to see the doctor. I remember being on the train, the first train ride to the doctor and telling my husband, like, if we find out today that we can't have any children, we adopt. And my husband was like, I don't think so. And we're the biggest advocates for adoption now. So I knew I knew nothing. And waiting those four months was excruciating. And when we got to Columbia Presbyterian, we were a colo couple. I remember coming in and asking for his name was the doctor we were going to see was Dr. Harold Fox. 
And they said, oh, Dr. Fox, he died yesterday. And totally out of character, my husband said, like, seriously, how could he die in us? We waited four months to see him. Nobody told us he died. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, we're married almost two, we're married two years plus. And, they, and then somebody heard the commotion and he said, you know, no, 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 Dr. Harold Fox, he's in the Yonkers, like further down. So we took a bus and a train to find out that he wasn't the doctor for us. And coming back on the train, I just said to my husband, I said, does it make any sense? Claudia's trial is so wonderful. There's so many organizations and there's no one for me to call for a doctor. And that's when we made a promise on the train. We were so hungry and tired. We ended up going to Dr. Fox very late. And he saw us, he said he can see us at the end of the scheduled day. So we saw him at four o'clock. We came back with a bus train. We were hungry. We were sad. We were tired. And then we waited another four months to see a doctor that he kind of recommended. We saw the doctor in Columbia. She was okay. She ended up getting pregnant. She was pregnant. She ended up having a baby while I was seeing her. And then we were sent to her associate. It was a very, very difficult journey. Um, her associate was very smart, but not very kind. Did not really know much about halacha or respect halacha. I remember at one point having such a horrible visit in the office that I said to my husband, I don't really care if I never have a baby. I'm not seeing him again. And we were coming down the elevator famously. And I remember this so clearly. Coming down the elevator and it was raining. So my husband realized he left an umbrella in the office. He said, I'm going up for the umbrella. And when we came up, the doctor was sitting over our files, studying our files. So he said to me, he said, Bronnie, maybe he, he does really care. Maybe he really does care. He was studying our file. And you know what? We kind of went back to him. Very, very difficult for me to go to the next visit. But he ended up being our shaliach when we had our baby. And <laughs> we had our maishi. I remember that first Shabbos and adding that little candle to my two you know, lonely candlesticks and just remembering. I remember my husband saying it that that very first Shabbos, I think Maishi was born on Sunday. So it was only a few days later. My husband said, you know, Ronnie, we made a promise. And when I added that candle, I still cry. You know, when I add, you know, and I light candles on Shabbos and I think of the people who did not have that suchus and it was drive to share to open something up. Wow. Wow. That's really, really special. Thank you so much for sharing. So I guess my next question would be, at what point did you actually start putting that promise into action? At what point did you say? Okay, we- um, so pretty much after he was born, he's 30, but we weren't sure where to go with this, you know, and so I met two women that started a time with us. One was Suri Newman and one was Lainey Steinberg. We met at a medical conference for infertility. And Suri, you know, we all had different ideas of where to go with this. And I really wanted a helpline, a medical helpline. I wanted a number for people to call. But I have to tell you that when we named our organization, people sometimes ask us, what is the time? So I wanted to be the Jewish Fertility Association. No shame. I love dispelling the shame. I, I always famously talk about our Himahos who, who talked about their infertility in the Torah. And I said, let's just be the Jewish Fertility Association. But they said, no one's going to, nobody's going to. It, it wasn't acceptable. Infertility wasn't spoken about. So we came up with the idea from Kohalas. There is a time to be born. It was really cute because at the Shasathon, the Sunday, just, just two days ago, someone said to me, I have an amazing idea for a time. 
because you're the pusik from Kohelas. Like there is a time to be born. I said, well, that's where it comes from. <laughs> it's very cute. So at, our first literature said there is a time and the acronym is a Torah infertility medium of exchange. So we had the word infertility. So that's who we became. And that's how we started, but it wasn't easy. So we right away became legal. You know, right away we're 501c3. And we were very much like very from the first people, like the internet became a thing that we put ourselves on the internet, like right away to reach more people. But before we did anything, we went to see what existed out there. So we visited an organization called the American Fertility Association. We visited Rizal, the national organization that was around for the Gayan. And then we visited an organization called Inside and we studied what they did. And we modeled ourselves after a little bit after Resolve AFA, but we first started with a phone line. So every program and service that we ever offered came from like, oh my gosh, we need to do this. So we really did start with a magazine because we thought that a magazine can bring medical information, Sezok, to the privacy of their home. So our very first magazine was very exciting. But before we did that, we said we need a Haskama from a Gadol. And we decided that we're going to go to Rav Palm. So famously, we went to, to Torah Vidas because Dee wasn't seeing anybody. Uh, three very excited women. And we sat outside the base matters because he gave a share once a month. I got a tip that he gives a share once a month. And people who wait outside the base matters perhaps can see him. So I also said that if we go to Rav Pam and we do get to have this plus of meeting him, then I would like my son to get a bracha. So we probably were, <laughs> we're probably a very interesting site. Three, three women outside the base medrash in Torah Vadas, my son on my lap, waiting for the, for the Rosh Hashiva. And we said the hold for Vadas, go into the yeshiva. And suddenly we saw Rav Pam and his kabayim. And this is 30-something years ago. And I remember this so clearly. It was such a tremendous zuchas to have seen the Rosh Hashiva and his, his kabayim. And they walked by us. And then they opened the door to the base medicine to our das. They opened, and we saw everybody get up. And the kabayim turned around and said, are you here to see the Rosh Hashiva? And we're like, yes. So they said, right after this year, and Rapam famously closed the door to the base medrash and said, nay, yes, no, now. And he took us into his room and he said, we told him that, you know, our journeys and the loneliness and there's nobody out there to help. And Rapam said, you see the desk that you're sitting at? You know how many tears were shed because people don't have who to talk to? And he said, you know what? I would really help you every step of the way. But he said, I'm not, I haven't been feeling well that well. He was telling us he's wearing a sweater. His wife knit. He never wore the sweater, even though it's a very nice gesture that she knitted for him. Very, very sweet Rosh Hashiva. And he got us a Rav to work with us. And this Rav, and, and this Rav reviewed everything we did at the very beginning. His name was Rav Chaim Kraus. And he would go back to Rav Pam with questions. So right away, we had the backing of a Gadol. We wanted to do everything with Das Torah. But it was still very hard. It was very scary and very hard, but we persevered. We were very driven. But, you know, I just, I was trying to say for anyone who's listening to this, because people ask me sometimes, Ronnie, how can I start an organization? And I look at them and say, like, oh, your life will change so much. But 
I, I, I'm like, go for it. And I think Sarah Palm, what he saw, <laughs> me, Blimey, and Suri, very excited young women with the baby, and he believed in us. And I was thinking Sunday at the Shasathon, it was so beautiful and so successful. There was like 600 people learning and we raised money to help the mission and the cause. And I'm like, did the Godel see this? Did he see this? He must have seen this when he looked at us. We weren't very impressive looking. It's amazing what you've accomplished. So now you're well-known. It's a national organization. Take me back. What did the first few years look like? What services were you providing? So we started with a support group. We were amazed that people showed up. We started with a magazine support group and phone line. Our address was a post office box. But we didn't do any fundraising because it was just us. There was someone who gave us an office after hours. So we would go there and work on the magazine and the organization after hours. So that was the very humble beginnings. It was very hard to get an ad into a paper if fertility wasn't spoken about. So I remember placing our first ad in all the papers. They sent it back and said it was a family magazine. And the only ad place that took our ads was Dergeet in Williamsburg. And I remember calling Blini and Surrey and saying, Dergeet took our ad, Dergeet took our ad. So they're like, yeah, sure. They can't read English. So they don't know about infertility. <laughs> but I knew they were journalists. So I called them up and I said, Mr. Friedman from the Yid, I give him credit for changing this for everybody. And I said to him, Mr. Friedman, thank you so much for taking our ad. Why'd you take our ad? He said, why not? I said, it says infertility. He says, I know. So I said, but it, it's, isn't this a family magazine? I was giving him the argument and he's like, it is. I said, and children read it? I said, yeah. He says, yes, they do. And he says, and won't they ask questions? And he said, so if they do, he says, doesn't every Kita Aleph Yingle learn that Sarah couldn't have any children. Why can't parents just say, like, sorry, Maynu? And I really feel that he cheated. We took this back to every newspaper. And although we are very careful, I review everything that goes into the paper. We, have, we do everything with Das Torah. So whatever we present, we don't want it to be undressing for our couples. We want to get the message there. We don't want it to be too exposing. And yet, you know, Barfa Shem, they do take our ads now. They really, really do. Even pregnancy loss was something that was like, okay, we don't do that. It's a family magazine. But I feel like when I see an ad, I'm still, rem- I remember the beginning and the fight to get an ad into the paper, how, how different it is right now. I remember doing a medical conference and inviting physicians to speak and we had no funds. So we, we told them, if you want the main speech, the main speech is $20,000. And they agreed. And it was shocking. And it all came from, you know, just making, wanting to make this happen. We reached out to the doctors that were speaking. were saying, you know, we'd like to put this in the paper. Would you give us some advertising money? It was very, very difficult at the beginning. But as our services grew... Mm-hmm. At every, like, you know, couples going through infertility, A, would need that referral, but they would also need, I personally feel the biggest thing that we accomplished is the stigma and the resources. So my journey was not lost. What I learned to my journey, what thousands of people lost on the journey, it's like, almost like ways, almost like ways where it's like, I can go from here to baby and I could go from here to a, to a town. Like we used to have the old fashioned maps where people used to look at directions and, and with ways they're like, okay, 
this is the right way to go. Okay, this is not working. Let's recalculate. Let's go left. No, this is not going to be a good place for you. And we do that the whole day based on like resources and our resources. That's one of the things we do. Did you ever expect back then that it would get to be what it is now? (laughs) That's only Hashem. (laughs) You go back and tell yourself something. What would you tell yourself? I I don't know. I think I feel like Hashem chose me. Like, I don't think I have a choice. I don't think I have a choice. I had, you know, sadly, like, you know, after my years of infertility, I had a stillborn baby. And I remember like holding my baby and there was nothing out there either in Halacha even, am I allowed to see the baby, not see the baby? And because of how crazy we were always with like changing and fertility, we established a big division at a time. It's called HUG, Hope, Understanding and Guidance for Pregnancy Loss. And this like was based on a lot of my personal experience, but the experiences that people go through. But with myself, um, handing this little baby to Chavrikadisha, not to Chavrikadisha, to the morgue. And then getting the bill for Chavrikadisha and mourning all over again, not knowing if I can daven with this baby. She was a full-term, beautiful baby. So Baruch Hashem, we established Hag, and there's clear halacha. And we pick up, we have we pay for, for burial, for Chavrikadisha burial, so they don't get the bill and mourn again. It's something we spend them from. And then we give them a meal when they come home and we give them a comfort packet and we help them do the next pregnancy. So hug came from not necessarily mine, but a collection of experiences that people went through. And, and then the question was like, was this for nothing? Someone who experienced many losses, did I do this for nothing? Pushed us to do like a workshop on, you know, like just exploring this experience. And of course, it comes with, it has its own helpline. And then hug is a division of its line. And then picking up the pieces. And that's not for infertility. That's for anybody who experiences any type of pregnancy loss. And so I think that realizing that when there is a need and you set out to help, just opens doors for you. Not to say that these things were easy, they're still not easy. Like we try to get into, so like we have, a, we have the doula program. So during COVID, you know, we, we, we had our doulas, you know, people go in, you know, to, to these really sad losses during COVID. That was a fight. You know, we were able to get them in. And many things we still struggle with. Uh, we do pre-cancer fertility preservation and we do, we have supervision. So supervision came from, the possibility of Hospital messing up in the laboratories. So people who do IVF cycles were afraid that it would be human error. So we established a supervision program, very, very, very successful, big program. And now we have Mashkifim. I don't know how many. I felt so sad. Again, I'm sorry. I'm referencing the shots this time because it happened a minute ago. A Mashkifim came over to me and she said, it means so much to me, Brani, that I want to be a Mashkifim. I didn't know her. So that's the loss of it becoming so big. And I'm like, thank you so much. I saw my husband when we were driving home. I wouldn't know all the mashkichim. So we have mashkichim, mashkichos that come to these high-tech cycles and IVF centers. Now, as they're going in in the morning, we realize that they get there sometimes it's so early in the morning with nothing to eat. Sometimes they do a procedure and they can't eat before and there's nothing to eat after that. So we have someone deliver food to the centers. And it's not just the food, it's the mashkicha, besides being in the lab with them, besides being in the OR with them, 
is there for them emotionally. They're not alone. They're not alone. They have somebody that's waiting for them with a warm, you know, yummy breakfast. They come home, they get dinner. Um, it's just, it just makes that whole thing so much easier. Someone does the referral. Someone makes sure they have the medication. Someone makes sure they can figure out how to pay for it. So I was telling you about the pre-cancer freeze. So Amashkichen are in many of the centers, like many of the cancer centers, like Sloan Kettering. And so this also came from meetings and everything. So the Mashkichen are there when they do the pre-cancer freeze. And recently we had a little girl that they were going to remove ovary for future, for future fertility. Now, I personally was so sad that you put a little girl who's going to be going through serious cancer treatment through this type of surgery. But I always think that if the oncologist and the fertility specialist feel that she's going to make it, they put away the ovary. And this little girl was in a different establishment at the hospital and they didn't know our Mashkifen and they wouldn't allow them in. And it was like, it, it, it ended up being like, I can't tell you how many I've gone in and then they wouldn't allow the ovary out. <laughs> and these are, you know, now... This place, now we established that this place is going to understand what we were going for. You know, it's giving the parents such a comfort level to know that there would be a Mashiach and little OR that will be there when the ovary, even though it's not done, it's just a comfort level. And then this ovary was sent to St. Louis and the lab in St. Louis stayed past midnight for our supervision to bring the ovary to St. Louis to bank for future, for future years. Now, had we ever imagined being part of this? It's not anything you can imagine. That's why I think it's a Kaddish Farkle who said, okay, you need to do this because <laughs> one day you'll be doing a future for stroll girl and ovary. You can't imagine where it takes you. But if anyone's listening, I just want to tell you that if you set out to help Claudia Stroll, Hashem takes care of, it's the thing of the bracha, because first of all, whatever I'm going to tell you on the podcast about a time, you can't imagine what's happening right now, right? Only Hashem sees the whole picture. And for any of our volunteers, anyone who's on the helpline, it might just be a helpline call, but there's so many different parts involved. And only Hashem sees that. The schar of helping is to see how Hashem takes care of his kindleuch. Like right before the Shantavan, Matei Shabbos, one of our financial people went to the office in Bar Park to, to pick up the mail in case someone mailed in a donation to the Shantavan so it would come onto their page during, during learning. And she says, she calls me, she says, Rani, you know Hashem loves the time? She walked in with one of her helpline people, someone needed medication, and we had it in the office. And one of our helpline people came together for this person. But for some reason, the code wasn't working. And she opened the office for her. And we get this so many times. I work here in Lakewood. Thursday, one of my, uh, my secretaries told me that she has Lovia. She's leaving. As she was leaving, somebody called for medication in Brooklyn that we had here in Lakewood. And she was able to take it to Brooklyn. These people don't live in Brooklyn. They were in Brooklyn. And we get a lot of this. We see how Hashem takes care of this. You just shalichem. Lucky to be there. For sure. Yes, sir. That's really special. I imagine that as new technology emerges and new treatments emerge, that 
your organization has had to kind of adapt quickly. Has that been a challenge for you as you grow? It totally, it totally is. What was a greater challenge was teaching Rabbanim, teaching Rabbanim, bringing Rabbanim, like saying it just as mother. Yet we watched a lot of things. It, it's very exciting. We watched egg freezing for women. I mean, freezing is not a big deal, but thawing and becoming baby was a big deal. We watched that happen. But the hard part was like, I remember Dr. Rava called my husband and said, Rabbi Rosen, you have to teach Rabbanim because a Rav told him that he has to do an ultrasound when he did a, you know, I don't remember the other name for a scan for like a, he says, I'm not going to let this treatment unless they do an ultrasound. But he did it. He did an ultrasound. He just, he didn't know what the other word was. I'm sorry. It's been a very busy, busy week, but he, he said, you have to teach them because I can't, I don't respect the rabbis if they don't know the medical part. And it was very funny because we recently mentioned this on a podcast and Dr. Rabba called me and said, we started teaching Rabban and we opened the Institute of Halacha and Technology where we give smicha to Rabbanim that learn fertility. We're doing it now in Lake Wakeman for Beisarnish and they learn the they learn the medical parts so they can be so they can pass in according to modern medicine. So he said to us, Dr. Rabbi say, Rabbi Rosen, you need to slow down a bit. I have doctors, I have rabbis fighting with me about medical part, and they know what they're talking about. He's very cute, but he said, you know, they're very good. Hashem, I work here in Lakewood. I have a, a rub on set. We have a rub that sits here in Lakewood office that answers medical questions, and he's a full-fledged diet. So I'm amazed at what he knows. But it has to come up. To, you have to, they need to know, the rabbis need to know the medicine, the rabbis need to know the medicine, and the doctors need to respect halacha. Recently, this past probably like two years ago, a crazy breakthrough uterine transplant became available. I personally had a crazy, I had an amazing story because a time is very big right now. And there are many, many, you know, programs and services. And I am the original founder, but now I am director of member services. It's run by an amazing board, amazing board of directors. And I feel that every non-for-profit, you know, just this is the non-for-profit thing should be run by a voting board because it gives you a global view. As much as I think, okay, what I think we should do with the funds that we get, it's me, Bronnie, with my view. But we get a whole board of people, you know, you really get a global vote. And I love it. And I love it. Even when I'm told no, like I have, I'm only, I'm director of member services because I like to be involved in everything. But <laughs> there's a group that of single girls that have known fertility issues, like no ovaries, no uterus, post-cancer. And this group is famously my girls. I know them by their names. I help them get married. I, I think they're amazing. I think that they are, the way they live their lives, they inspire me. When we moved to Tom's River, we had, we, I made them a retreat in my house. And, I, and we went, my husband and I went to Tom's River's medical convention. This is five years ago, six years ago. Tromasaur's convention in Florida, President's Convention. And Mosey Shabbos, the girls called me about a credit card that I lost a number, was working or whatever. And as I'm talking to them, Rep. Shmuel Kamenetsky came to sit at my table. So I said, girls, you know, that at our table? Just that to sit at our table? And they were like, who? I said, Rep. Shmuel Kamenetsky. So one of the girls said, could you get us a bracha? And I, and I asked my husband to ask for the Rashiva for bracha. 
And he said, he told them, can I have a bracha for girls who cannot have any children? And without blinking, Rashul said, and when the girls asked me what the Rosh Hashiva said, I, I didn't know how to say it. Because like I said, he said, what do you say, Bronnie? What do you say? He said, he said, a Kaddish Baruch could change in Teva. So one of the girls like laughed. Mamish like, sorry, Manu. She says, seriously, I don't have a uterus. Like, okay, you know, That's whatever. Funny. And then another girl said, look, he's a Gadol. He just gave us the bracha. And... That's it. I gave them the credit card. That was the end of that. A few weeks later, our medical director of Iconic told me that the first uterine transplant happened in Cleveland Clinic. Now, for if you watch the world of infertility, who would be interested in this type of research? It's like so, so wow that it came to Cleveland Clinic. And that wasn't successful. And then when Cleveland Clinic with the famous Dr. Falcone had that first baby, we flew the doctor into Manhattan to speak to our girls and the parents. And our diet, Rabhaim Aranango, who's Sabanaya of Climate Street, he said this is totally acceptable. So right away there was some sakalacha. And as we speak, we have I, I remember I just want to say that when I was driving back to Lakewood from that, I was crying the whole time because it has become teva. It's not a difficult, it's not that difficult. And the girls carry the babies and they give birth, they feel the baby. And right now we have like seven, Baruch Hashem, seven women pregnant from uterine transplant and three babies. Wow. Me, that was like the week of Yitzhi's Mitzrayim, Mom, it's like Yitzhi's Mitzrayim, like when the, when the water splits. So I'm curious to hear in your experience over, you know, running this organization for a few decades now, have you felt a tremendous shift in terms of like, is the stigma less now than it is now? Are people more open? Do you still face that challenge? So you always face that challenge. You always face that challenge, you know, because it, it's it's hard to belong to a group. Like it's, it's hard, let's say, coming to the retreat. We had a, at our Shabbaton recently, we had 300 couples. I think the hardest thing, the 100 of the couples were new. I think a, the hardest thing is to, to come to something like this, to say like, oh, yes, this is me. I am, I am that infernal couple. It's very, very hard. That doesn't change. The feeling of... Did I fail my parents? You know, it doesn't change. It's it's a feeling that it hurts. It's a feeling of shame. It's something that I, I live. But of course, at this retreat, we were like exploring that and exploring the Imahos who didn't do anything wrong. The pain is the pain. It's like if you if you burn yourself, nothing changes because there are people who know how to treat it so well quickly. But so that I think is so universal. In, in the AFA resolve, that pain that we deal with, that raw pain of like failing a cycle. I recently spoke to uh, therapists that deal with grief and they're so familiar with grief, but they're not familiar with what I know as the monthly grief. So the pain is consistent. What we can do is really amazing to help some of the pain to make this journey quicker and easier with the right resources and everything. But the shift in pain never changes. The shift in the shame, hopefully, I think really made a big difference. We saw the world change in adoption. We see like I went through from like seeing like, you know, will I ever be attached to this baby? Will I ever find the baby to like just find my baby? To to coming to 
beautiful event with the adopted little little adopted girls dressed in beautiful gowns because the adoption became legal. That became like, oh my gosh, to me, these are the things that are amazing. But finding out that there's no hope, like it, these things were are so consistent. What we do with them, what, how we can help, of course, has shifted. But what stayed as a consistent drive is is to help with this pain. How do you deal with, I guess, the burnout that could potentially come from witnessing so much pain on a regular basis? I think that a lot of people in the nonprofit world that I've spoken to have this, and it's it's a it's a real thing. You see, oh, it's it's so real. It's so so real. There definitely is burnout. Um, there's so many times that I said, "I'm done." <laughs> I can't do this anymore. That I've cut this broken camps to you in this like real text. Like I it, like silly things where Hashem picks certain people and says, okay, he'll do him fertility. As many times as I'm like, I remember he used to look, looking out. We used to be, I used to live in Brooklyn and our office is on 13th and 48th street. And I used to look out the window. My mother loved saying, oh, Bronnie waited so long for her children. And now she leaves her children and goes to help people have children. You get a lot of that. Um, but I remember looking out the window by 13th Avenue and seeing people just strolling the street and saying, I wish I could be one of those people. Like, you know, just it's a humongous thing to to be involved in pain a whole day. You want to run from it sometimes, but what you can do, like how you change lives and who they become, it just keeps you going. I remember when Eric Pesach. Arab Pesach used to be extremely hard on big fundraisers. It was two weeks after Pesach. Our staff is human, as devoted and amazing as they are. Uh, people are preparing for Pesach. So we found that my husband and myself were filling in for a lot of different, you know, things. And it was Arab Pesach. And my dryer went right before Pesach. And a whole Pesach, I was dealing with that. I didn't have time to water a new dryer. And I, I remember coming into the office right after Pesach and there was a meeting waiting for me. And I, this is embarrassing, but I'm just going to share the story. And it was very stressful in the office, a lot going on. And I remember calling AJ Madison and getting a person waiting on online forever. Like they said, by 11 o'clock, oh, Bronnie, if you order by 11 o'clock, you'll have it tomorrow. And it was just really not even the dryer. It was just like, I need to be... I need to have that dryer to help the cloud. That's what that's what's going on in my head. It just didn't make any sense when I look back at it. And I remember the recording. It was like, you know, please hold on. We're happy to help you. The next available person. And then somebody just came in. She says, Bronnie, did you get your dry yet? I said, no. She says, call carpet and tell them to put you through to someone in the showroom. And the guy picked up and he took my order for the dryer. And then he said to me, Mrs. Rosen, um, will you will you put, is this tax-free? Is this through time? I said, no, absolutely. This is private. So he says, but I'd like to give you a discount. He says, you know, it's seven years on this journey. I'm having my baby in a couple of weeks and it's your baby too. Wow. And it was a very strong reminder. I was so humbled when I walked back into that meeting room. And I have to say, I get that a lot. Because like, I feel like Hashem said, okay, you get out there <laughs> and you help. And yes, it's hard. It's very hard financially. It was very hard financially for a while. It it could be very hard. I remember we read a very bad financial place and we were running a medical conference, a medical something. And I said, you know, let's pull an ad in a, a paper that was expensive. And my husband's like, 
My husband came in later on the board and my husband was voted not that much later, but he was voted an executive director. The board, we gave it to a board. The women gave it to a board and the board voted my husband an executive director. So it turned around that I work for him. I don't mind because I could do what I love doing and I don't have to worry about paying our financial, like our bills. So I send an email to the board asking for certain finances and I don't care because I knew I couldn't do financial. It was so stressful for me. And I remember before the board was like, before everything was like so solid, Baruch Hashem, and we have an amazing board. And they say no to certain things. And I accept it because I feel like they have the global view of the whole organization, which I don't have anymore. But I remember saying, well, let's call that ad. It was so expensive. It was $1,500. We thought it was way too much. And they and my husband said, no, we're not pulling anything. And I remember getting a message from a hospital that they have an ad in that specific paper for $1,500. I know for $1,500 and they'd like to donate it to a time. So it was another reminder. You get a lot of these reminders from Akadosh Baruch where he's like, we need you to help our, the, you know, we need you to help how you show this way. And you know what? Just pick up the pieces. And then you have like cases where you're with a couple for so long and then they get like bad news and you just can't do it. Like it's, you can't even look at them. You know, recently it was so busy with the shots. If we did a Shabbaton in UK, we did a Shabbaton in America. And then the regular stuff in a time is quite busy. And one of our couples, you know, was losing their house. He lost his job. He's losing his house. They had gone through so much. And some of the people in a time family put together money for an attorney. That's not on our mission statement, but we, they knew if he loses his house, he would have nothing. So they just pulled together and they put together $25,000 in five minutes. So, you know, the mission statement is very clear to do anything we can for couples going through infertility. And then of course, like, Watching our phone lines get more and more calls about OBGYN calls, staining calls. We realized that we need to establish a division called uh, for just women's health. And that's our division called Chava, which all of this comes from. <laughs> like, I don't know who to call. It's like all the time. So our our original and, and of course, we, we our original mission was to be there in any which way for couples going through fertility. But if we're preserving fertility for the future, that. That is something we have to do. We don't have a choice. A shop is program. So we have, <laughs> we realize that couples get a call a minute before Shabbos. They have to be in the city for Shabbos. Now, if they're doing a cycle in the city, they also need a mashifa. So we have a program on Shabbat, on Friday. So now we're at a place where the doctors will call our, our program, our supervision, and tell them, you know, this couple will be in there on Shabbos. So we know Rabbanim who, who know the halacha, right? We know mashkichim that will be there, very devoted mashkichim that will be there for Shabbos. All of them need hotel rooms. All of them need food. Then we have um, couples who don't necessarily have to be in the center, but need to send in blood on Shabbos. So we have a courier that picks up blood on Shabbos. So I always, when I bench left, I always think about our Shabbos program. And I think what is list they have, like going into Shabbos, knowing what they did on a Friday, and of course, the people that paid for it, the board. So you're running this organization that's grown so much. You have so many different services. What would you identify as either your biggest or most urgent challenge when it comes to the organization as it is today? So our biggest and most urgent challenge. <laughs> for me, it would be my personal 
urgent thing that I daven for, like Moshe Rabbeinu daven for when he went into Eretz Yisrael. Like my, Baruch we help people in so many ways, right? We really do. But my personal thing is research for the couples that have not, that have gotten a closed door. There's a group that I, I mamish daven, like like Moshe, whenever he davens go to Eretz Yisrael, I say like, I saw uterine transplant. I would like to be around when these couples have a breakthrough. There's a group of couples that, you know, have a, a tremendous challenge with male fertility. I have to tell you that we, we do real research with this. We we'll always look like we're down the verge of a breakthrough. And I, I really feel that if there's something that could be done with us, Tefila, even Tefila, just whatever, whatever could be done. So these beautiful young, some very, very young couples will have a Yeshua in my lifetime that I should be able to see it. I think that's my that's my biggest challenge, you know, to watch that there's nothing that could be done. I have to tell you also, and I'll tell you what the organizational challenge, what I think is a big organizational challenge. But I, I always just want to say that for on this journey, we're seeing like if you go to the lab and you watch an IVF cycle, you could you cry from the you cry from what they can do. Technology is amazing. Um, they can manipulate eggs. They can do assisted hatching. They can do everything. They they do things in co-culture and a million different things. And they keep on bringing up new things. And no one in the entire universe can do conception. Because that only a Kaddish Baruch can do. Because he says, I hold the key. And I always say, like, how could doctors not believe that there's a God? Because everything looks so perfect. And they, they go home for their famous two-week wait. And they need to wait for Kaddish Baruch to kick in. The biggest challenge for me personally is that there's no hope for some couples that infertility is a very big challenge. Just watching people go through it, that every time we think we help another couple, another couple, there's a new couple living this. It's sometimes also reliving the pain. I'm a doula for Hummy, for Hug. I became a comfort doula. And I have to tell you that it's so painful. And the biggest organization, okay, the challenge, you really want the non-for-profit challenge. So for us, a lot, for a time, it happens to be that because we protect our couples so much, it was always very difficult for us to fundraise on a bigger scale. Because here we're, we're telling our couples, you're okay, we're protecting your privacy, we're protecting your dignity, and we could not come out and say... What we do, how we do it, a lot of the stuff is not for public knowledge. So we needed to go on trust a lot. Baruch Hashem, the Shasathon really put us on the map. If you read our, our auction book, it tells you a lot, but it doesn't tell you a lot. And it was hard to fundraise like that, I have to say. And, and, and for years, we were really in the red. Baruch Hashem. We help more and more people. They're our biggest advocates. They go out there and they say, a time is good, you know, help them. They're MS, they're what they say they do, they do. But I have to say that fundraising is probably a huge challenge. Covering the bills, making sure that, you know, our employees get paid. are paid. We work with a lot of volunteers, but anyone on anyone that you meet to be in the lab needs to be in the lab at seven in the morning, needs to spend Shabbos in the hospital, needs to get paid. So that, that was a big challenge. And then 
as we got bigger, making sure that we're there for our couples or for the people that reach out to us 100%, really being there for them. So when I look at the Shasavan, and I think it came in close to 7 million, I think it's amazing, but I look at it like such an achrayas to be there 100%. It's nice that the community trusts us and they give us tzedakah and they give us, and we know it's clown money. But it's such a tremendous responsibility. For sure. For sure. I hear that challenge a lot of how do you protect the confidentiality of the people that you're helping, but raise enough money to help the next wave of people. It's always like a, a fine line. Thank you so much. I think that's what's fabulous to share. So many really inspirational things. I think people will really benefit from it. So thank you so much for being here today. You're welcome. I just want to say that, you know, you keep on doing the non-for-profit things that anyone who's out there that really, you know, thinking of like, okay, you know, I can make a difference. I want to make a difference. People ask me for what, for this or for that, go for it. It's It's not up to you to finish. If you were to tell me, okay, that we would be able to cover a retreat. We, we, we did this when we were in the reds, but somehow a Kaddish Farah kicked in and we did what we had to do and he did his part. So he set out to help. Shem helps you, but also myself, like whatever I learned on this journey, I'm happy to share. So, and anyone who's going through fertility who's listening to this, reach out, reach out. Or don't be afraid if it's like, sometimes they say, well, this is such a small thing. I can't go to my, my brother's breast or whatever. We don't consider anything small. If it prompts you to call us, we want to help you with it. Thank you. That's so important. So if somebody does want to reach out, what's the best way to contact you? So our main number, our main office is 718-437-7110. Our website is thetime.org. Actually, I gave you the helpline number. 437-710 is the time helpline, main helpline number. The main number in time main office is 718-686-8912. We have an office in Israel. We have an office in London. We have an office in, in America and a few places. But the main number will bring you everywhere. Great. I'm going to share that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you being here. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Change the World podcast. If you have any feedback or an idea for my next episode, or if you're a nonprofit leader interested in learning more about how 14 Minds can help your nonprofit, I'd love to hear from you. Just send an email to tsivia at 14minds.com. For more nonprofit content, follow me on LinkedIn or visit 14minds.com.